0: Behind me, on the western wall of the temple here in Luxor, Egypt, is the inscription of the great Ramesses. What a man he was, one of the greatest conquerors, one of the greatest soldiers that the world has ever seen. I'm particularly interested in this character, Ramesses the Great, because of his associations with the Hittites. You see, friend, For many, many years, the skeptic said there were no such people as the Hittites. And the skeptic pointed his finger at the Bible in derision and said, You can't believe the Bible. It is historically inaccurate. It is just a load of myths. And the skeptic said, Take, for instance, the Hittites. They're mentioned in the Bible and there were no such people and then archaeologists read the inscriptions on the walls of these temples and there they read the story of how ramesses the great fought the hittites once again it was proved that the bible was correct and the hittites were real people and the skeptics were wrong you can believe the bible do you think that god would shut you out of heaven because you wore the wrong clothes. That's what the sermon is about today. The wrong clothes or the right clothes. But before I talk to you about wearing the right clothes to the wedding... I'd like to introduce someone who's going to come and talk to us. Uh, that is my wife, Beverly, and I'd like you to welcome her today. Okay. Okay.
1: Happy Sabbath, everybody. Who do you know who has eyes as big as saucers, loves to stay up late, and would rather have a mouse than pizza any day? If you said an owl, you would be correct. See these things sticking up on the top of his head? Or they're supposed to be sticking up. They look like ears, but they're not. They're just tufts, tufts of hair. They are specialised feathers that stand up on many species of owls to simply camouflage them in the forests, because when they're in danger, they just pull themselves up very tight, stick these up so they look like sticks or branches, and this helps them to hide better. Where are their ears, you may well ask? Well, if you look deep under the feathers here, you will see a slit, which is called a conch. An owl opens and closes its ears by using muscles underneath these feathers called the facial disc. And so this built-in satellite dish captures and funnels the sound into its ears. And we thought we made the first satellite dish. Owls have magnificent eyes that make them look very wise, hence the saying, he looked as wise as an owl. Interestingly, each enormous eyeball is locked in one position. Now, when I look straight ahead, and if I want to see the side wall, I can just move my eyes and I can see the walls. But he cannot. If he wants to see the side walls, he has to turn his head to see the side walls. However, To make up for what seems to be a disadvantage, God gave the owl 14 neck bones, double the amount that we have. And this means that an owl can turn its head 270 degrees in each direction. Not not at once, of course. But he can swivel his head just about all the way around, so no one can sneak up behind him, which would be good in a game of tag. Owls are extremely skillful flyers. Because of the large size of their wings compared to the smallness of their bodies and because of special feathers in their wings, they can fly almost silently. If you sat outside on a moonlit night and if you were very quiet, you might just happen to see an owl fly past, but you wouldn't hear him. He can fly so quietly. The Bible mentions the owl in Isaiah 13 as living in the destroyed cities of Babylon and Edom, which indicates to me that they are a strong and independent bird. One of the interesting lessons that we can learn from the owl comes from their family life. Most owls mate in late winter. Males begin seeking mates by calling through the afternoon in the evening air. Generally, the larger species go hoot-hoot, while the smaller species go toot-toot, which sounds logical, doesn't it? Mating owls spend a great deal of time together. They may rub their bills across each other's heads and facial disc. They call this preening. I call it caressing, and seems a nice thing to do. Scientists think that it reduces fighting and other aggressive behavior, which explains why owls don't need marriage (laughs) counsellors. So the lesson is, be nice to each other and you will have a happy home. As the good book tells us, love and take care of each other, just as our Heavenly Father loves and takes care of us.
0: The topic today is would God cast you out of the kingdom because you turned up in the wrong clothes, the wrong clothes. The topic today is the right clothes for the right occasion. I'm told that the president of the United States, President George Bush, and we all pray for, hates at least two things, really hates two things. When he's having a meeting in the Oval Office, he hates cell phones going out, going off. Because if they go off, they go out. He hates cell phones. And he can say to people, don't you put a cell phone in the Oval Office. How I wish I had the power of the president of the United States. (laughs) Now, there's another thing that the president can't stand. He can't stand people turning up in the Oval Office in the wrong clothes. You've got to wear a suit. The ladies have got to wear suits. He says this is the highest office in the land of the greatest nation in the world, United States of America. A cabinet officer turned up recently with a nice white shirt on him. Nice tie and trousers and the works, but no coat. The president said, "Sorry, we can't have a meeting here because secretary or somebody so-and-so has got on the wrong clothes." Goodness, I guess they all wish they were working for Bill Clinton. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can, wear, you can wear anything, but the topic today is: Would God? Cast us out of heaven if we wore the wrong clothes. I want you to take your Bibles and turn over here with me to Matthew 22 and verses 1 down to 14. Matthew chapter 22 and verses 1 down to 14, dear people. Matthew 22 and verses 1 and onwards. Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. We would say a rather drastic response or is it, which leads us to the question What is meant by the wedding garment or the wedding clothes? Because the Bible makes the plain, and these are the words of Jesus, that if you go to the gospel feast and if you don't have on the right clothes, you're going to be thrown into outer darkness where people are going to weep and gnash their teeth. I want to tell you a story. I told the folks at the Tuesday night Bible study this story a week ago. It is a great story, And I want to illustrate a great truth from the story. When I was running a campaign in the city of Melbourne, Australia, we had a great book stand there. And the people would come by the thousands after the meetings and they would buy excellent books. And we placed on the book stand a little book entitled Saved by Grace that was written by one of the greatest of all preachers. His sermon on heaven, if you would read it through, and this man died 100 years ago or so, it would just move you to tears. Tremendous preacher with a wonderful way with words. And he told this story. This was the theme of the book, Saved by Grace. There was a wealthy man and his daughter was about to get married. And so he said to his son-in-law, I'm going to give you a large sum of money and I'm going to give you these plans to build a beautiful home for my daughter and for yourself because you're becoming my son. Now he said, I want you to follow the plans very, very carefully. And when this place is finished, it is going to be a mansion fit for a king and his bride, fit for a king and queen. And so, This young man started to work and he worked for months he had servants who came in he directed everything and then the day came when the house was to be inspected and the father came and he said to the boy let us walk through the house they soon found out it was anything but what he expected this was a huge place it had stables for horses but the stables were in the bathrooms and the bathrooms and the toilets were in the stables half a mile down the back of the house it was a two-story house the kitchen was up in the attic and he said to the boy this is not what I told you to build And also, you have built badly. If you take a wall here and shake it, it's about to fall down. He said, you have failed completely. And the preacher told this great story and the people said, amen. Now the father said, I have a son. And what I'm going to do is this, because I love you. We're going to start again. You have made a mess. You have made a mess of the building, but we're not going to give up because I believe in grace. We're going to start again. And my son is going to work with you because my son is a master builder and he will make no mistakes and he'll work beside you. He'll be there. Every moment of the day and he will ensure that when the house is built through your labor with the help from my son that it will be a perfect house. And so they worked on together the son-in-law and the son. And through the help of the son who worked with the son-in-law. After a period of time there emerged a magnificent mansion. And the king came, the father came and he walked through the place and he said, you have passed the judgment because with the help of my son you have put up a perfect building. And the congregation said amen. The building was erected by the grace of God because the house that was ruined is us. And the house that was rebuilt is us. Rebuilt by the glory of God and the success in making the house perfect guaranteed that the judgment would say, you have got a perfect score. And the people said, amen. And I said to the pastors who were in charge of the book stand after reading the book, take it off the book stand because that is no gospel, that is a heresy. And if you cannot tell the heresy, then my friend, maybe you do not understand the truth of the gospel. Why do you need the blood if that is true? It is true that we have ruined the building. Amen. Amen. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But my success in the judgment is not that I can bring to God a perfect life that is sinless. My hope in the judgment is that Jesus died for me. And his righteousness stands in my place. You say, but it is subtle. There is truth in it. Yes, the line of truth and the line of error lie close together. I want you to turn... Think about this carefully because if this is something that has you confused today, it is in the providence of God that you are here today. Would you please take your Bible and turn over here to the book of Romans with me, my beloved friends? Romans, I want you to see this. Romans 3. And I want you to notice. A most important text on salvation, Romans, the third chapter. And I'm going to turn to verse 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. I am not made righteous because by the grace of God I can put up a perfect building by keeping the law. People say, but I never knew that's what the text meant. That's what the text says. I am not declared righteous by my success in keeping the law. Rather through the law we become conscious of sin. Verse 23, 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yes, we have botched up the blueprint. Every one of us. Some of us realize it and some of us are too proud to acknowledge it. Verse 24. And are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. I am saved Not because by the grace of God I can put up a perfect building. I am saved because of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Because he died for me on the cross. May this truth be driven down into my mind today. One great author said if this truth is comprehended by the people of God, Satan will lose his power over them. I want to quote you from my beloved King James Version. I bought this Bible in 1970. I have now been in the ministry with my wife Beverly for just over 40 years. This is my 41st year. By the grace of God. And this is my beloved King James Version. And I want to read you a note that I've written here in the margin of my Bible next to Romans 4. The Heidelberg Confession, 1563. How art thou righteous before God? Answer, only by true faith in Jesus Christ. That is, although my conscience accused me that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God and have never kept any of them, and that I am still prone always to all evil, can you say amen? amen yet God without any merit of mine of mere grace grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction righteousness and holiness of Christ as if i had never committed nor had any sin and had myself accomplished all the obedience which Christ had fulfilled for me if only I accept such benefit with a believing heart And the Protestant reformers, even though they had many faults, they were not in darkness as far as the gospel is concerned. The preacher who wrote the little book that I referred to, that I took off the book stand, saved by grace, was walking in darkness. Therefore, we have established the fact that I am saved by grace alone, through faith alone, let it sink down into our ears and let it fill the molecules of our minds. Back to the question, what is the wedding garment? It may not be what you think it is. And I'm quite sure from what I've said already, it is not what you think it is. I want you to look at this story in its context. The context of the wedding clothes is in the context of controversy with false religionists, the professionals, the people who are the professional debaters and the professional correctors of others. I want you to notice the context. Come here to Matthew 21. I want you to notice this because a text without a context, you know, is a pretext. And I want you to see the context. Matthew 21, 12, and 13. I want you to see what precedes the story of the wedding garment. Verse 12 and 13. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said, my house will be called a prayer, house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Here were people who were more interested in money than in their own soul salvation, and yet they were professional religionists, the money changers. Look at verse 18 and 19. Early in the morning, as he was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it and found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. This is the story, of course, of the Jewish nation in the days of Jesus, the nation of the Pharisees. They had lots of leaves. Lots of pretentious foliage, but they had no fruit. Remember this? Show, but no substance. Lots of talk, but nothing else. And as you read on a little further, you'll read something else in the context. Look at verse 23. I want you to notice this chapter, verse 23. Jesus entered the temple courts. And while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. Here Jesus is having a tremendous controversy with the chief priests and the elders. And remember this, the chief priests and the elders were the people who crucified God. Don't forget it. The people who could sprout more theology than all of us together were the ones who crucified God. So Jesus tells this story in the context of his controversy with people who just talk. No fruit just leaves. The chief priests and the elders. Now notice Matthew 21 verses 28 to 32. You notice it's all the same type of stuff. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. It is all right to be rebellious if you don't stay that way. I will not, he said. This is the Gentile. Verse 30. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. He was a person who was prone to be a liar. I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did what the father wanted? The first they answered. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. So Jesus is talking in the context of people who make a great pretense of religion, but nothing else. They are the theorists. But Jesus tells here that the prostitutes will be saved. And then, if you notice verses 33 to 43, a lengthy passage. Would you notice it? Verses 33 to 43 of Matthew 21. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. What is the vineyard? The house of Israel. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. Who are the farmers? The children of Israel. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. Who are the servants? The prophets. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. Who is this? Jesus. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir, come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what would he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent out the vineyard to other tenants. It will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone? The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruits. In verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. So here we have the story of judgment upon false religionists. And Jesus said, after all the warnings from the prophets, the kingdom of God is going to be taken from you because you have rejected my son. The greatest judgment does not come upon the world. It comes upon the church that rejects the gospel. So all of this is in the context of Christ's controversy with professional religionists. And then he tells the story of the wedding clothes. So there's a great banquet And they go out and they say, come in to the banquet. And the people say, no, the first call is given. To whom is the first call given? To the Jews. And then later on in the story, because they refuse to accept the invitation, what does the king do? The Bible says he's enraged with holy wrath and he sends his army and he burns up the city. When did that happen? 70 A.D. That is the destruction of Jerusalem by Titus in 70 AD. Why did this happen to the city of Jerusalem? Because the people rejected the invitation to the banquet. The most dangerous thing that you can play with is with the gospel. It is safer, my friend, to play with forked lightning than to play and to trifle with the gospel. And because they rejected the ministry of Jesus, Wrath came upon them and the city was burned up. And then there is another invitation. Go out to the streets and the highways and the byways. And so the apostles then turn from their own people largely and they go to whom? The Gentiles. And the invitation is given to the Gentiles. And so they gathered together at the banquet, the marriage supper of the land. And when the king comes in, he sees there one person who doesn't have on a wedding garment. That, of course, is the judgment when the king comes. Now the question is, what is this wedding garment? It must have something to do with counterfeit religion. It must have have something to do With false religionists. It must. Can you see the context? That's what it must be. It must be. Now I have worried about this. And I can say I have worried about this in the sense that I have studied it for years. And my mind has not been clear on it until more recent times. Because I had the pat answer. And my pat answer was this. The wedding garment is... The covering of the blood of Jesus. And that must be true. Because is there any way home to the kingdom of God? But there have been millions of people who have claimed the covering of the blood of Jesus. So the question is what is this wedding garment? And I found the answer in a parallel passage. In Revelation 19, verses 7 to 9. Revelation 19, verses 7 to 9. And as I get through this today, then I believe you're going to feel the power of God and you're going to say, Lord, have mercy upon me. Help me. Revelation 19, verses 7 and onwards. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready fine linen bright and clean it doesn't say white and clean it may be white i am not absolutely certain but it says bright and clean was given her to wear fine linen stands for the imputed righteousness of christ i thought it must say but the text says fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. And so in my mind was the conflict that salvation is by grace alone, dear hearts. It is by faith alone. It is as the Heidelberg Confession says. It is plain. But the text here introduces something else. It says, the fine, bright linen represents the righteous acts, the righteous deeds of the saints. And then I had the problem in my mind. What if we don't have enough righteous acts when we come into the judgment? And I am aware of the fact that no person does. No person does. And then I asked the question as I studied the context and sometimes we are superficial in our study. We take a text and we run everywhere with it without study. What was wrong with the religion of the Pharisees? I will tell you, all leaves, no fruit. All show, no salvation. All talk, no transformation. Did you know that we're not saved by debating truth? Did you, did you know that? Truth is not usually discovered through debate. It is discovered through the conviction of our sins. And That's a lot harder. But the Pharisees were the world's greatest religious debaters. All talk, no transformation. All debate, no demonstration. All law, no love. All lightning, no rain. The story of the wedding clothes unmasks counterfeit religion. Listen, I will tell you the answer. The wedding clothes represent 100% the righteousness of Jesus. 100% The righteousness of Jesus imputed to me without any merit of my own, demonstrated by a consistent holy character. Thus the righteous deeds. Not perfect people, but not hypocrites either. In Australia, quite a few years ago, It was a great controversy over righteousness by faith. My position has never changed in the gospel since I've been a minister. It has not changed one whit since I've been a minister. But once I preached a sermon and I had the temerity to say that in the judgment we are judged according to our works and people got up and they put on a show and they were walking out. How dare you say we're judged according to works? I said to them, dear friend, you condemn me not. You condemn but your own ignorance because that is what the Bible says. That in the judgment we are judged according to our works. Come over here to Revelation 20 verses 11 to 13. You can see why the Pharisees would not like such a sermon. Revelation 20 verses 11 and onwards. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Now the king comes in, you see, to see the guests. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. And so in the judgment, oh, the superficial man cries out, this is legalism. No, this is the Bible. The Bible says there is a record of every life. And when the king comes in to see the guests, he looks at the wedding dress. You see, my friend, God can read the heart, but the witnesses can only see what you're wearing. And your clothes show Your spiritual clothes show whether you are a true believer or not. We are judged by works. Why? Because righteous deeds distinguish between true faith and false faith. And so if a million people come up to Jesus and they say, let me in because I claim the blood of Jesus... But their lives show anything but. They will be cast out. Now, in the chapters Matthew 7, 5 to 7, Jesus describes the character of those who wear the wedding garment. I only saw the connection last night. Please look at Matthew 5 to 7. I'm giving you stuff today which is In a certain extent, to a certain extent, out of revelation to my soul because these chapters show the character of the people who wear the wedding garment. And it is amazing. Look at Matthew 5, verse 5. This is just a sample, just a sample. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart. And then you come to verse, so the people who wear the wedding garment, who are the citizens of the kingdom of God, have these characteristics. And verse 21, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who was angry with his brother, and fortunately it says in the original, without a cause, will be subject to judgment judgment. Anyone who says to his brother Rachar is answerable to the Sanhedrin but anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. People say we want something from the New Testament because it's much easier than the old. Are you kidding? What Jesus tells us here goes further than the Ten Commandments ever went. Verse 27, I'm giving you samples. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then verse 38, you've heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you. Verse 43. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. What teachings are these? These are the teachings that tell us what the people are like who wear the wedding garment. And then you come down here to verse Chapter 6, verse 12, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Forgive your enemies. Verse 14 says that too. And chapter 7, verse 1 and onwards, do not judge or you too will be judged for in the same way you judge others, you'll be judged and with the measure you use, it'll be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own So what is Jesus telling me here? He talks about anger, lust, turning the other cheek, going two miles. He says in another place right here in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, don't even worry. Don't worry about a thing. And I think to myself, Jesus is describing his children Maybe we haven't read these verses. Jesus is telling me that character counts. These verses tell us that many of us have been deceived by a false gospel of cheap grace that would lead us to believe that we could do anything we liked as long as we said, Jesus, cover me. Would you look at Matthew 7, verse 13 and 14? Oh, my friend, I want to be true to the Bible. Matthew 7 and verse 13 and 14, Jesus said, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. When he gave the parable of the wedding garment, he said, Many are called But few are chosen. And then if you look at verses 21 to 23 of the same chapter. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only he who does the will of my father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy, preach in your name, and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The Bible tells me that the man who stands the scrutiny of the judgment who is wearing the wedding garment puts the words of Jesus into practice. Have you ever thought about this before? I have here today almost a stunned congregation. I hear no amens because most of us have been like the foolish man who built on sand because the foolish man heard the words of Jesus but he did not put them into practice anger lust turning the other cheek going the two miles forgiving don't worry judging and condemning others so the person who hears the words of Jesus and puts them into practice will wear the Lord's wedding garment in the judgment dearly beloved Deeds will show whom I serve, Jesus or the devil. I've told you the story before I will tell it to you again. Think of a great river in Siberia. And it's frozen solid. And then summer comes or spring comes and the thaw comes and the ice melts and the river is flowing to the sea in spite of eddies and... Conflict of currents. That's what happens when I come to Christ. If a person is frozen in sin, he can debate religion until the cows come home to be milked. He can debate it all day, but the works in the life show. If the ice is broken... Ah, there's eddies in the stream. There are no perfect people. In the judgment, God is not going to say, are you a perfect person? But he's going to look at the life because the deeds of the life show where your heart is. And that's why Jesus said the person who hears the words of mine and puts them into practice. I think in our church and in much of many of the churches of North America, if not all, we have been resting on a false hope because we have not been taking the words of Jesus seriously. We have been like the critics who have cut great portions out of the Bible because it didn't suit us. What then are the wedding clothes? The wedding clothes represent the gift of God's perfect righteousness. Sometimes when I preach a thing like this, people are so blinded in sin that they'll come to me later and they'll say, but you said, that. no, no, please listen now. The wedding clothes represent the gift of God's perfect righteousness, justification by grace alone through faith alone, demonstrated by righteous deeds. I want to tell you about some people who've touched my life and taught me the gospel. I could tell that they were wearing the clothes. There was Curly. I've told some of you the story of Curly, Curly Hardy. Invited to the home of a wealthy farmer who came to one of my meetings. When we got there, the man was rude and insulting, even though he had invited us to his home for a meal. He'd thought it over. His conscience was troubling him. He cursed me. He swore at me and ordered me and Curly off the property. I left with some ministerial dignity. I hope. I was enraged. How dare he? Curly said to me, well, he wasn't very nice. I said, no. Two days later, it was the man's birthday. Curly went back by himself. He didn't take me. He thought perhaps I was a little pot soon hot. So Curly went back by himself. Had a great birthday cake that his wife had made. He came up the stairs singing. And as the man opened the door he burst into happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. The man was going to throw him down the stairs. What can you do with a man who's got so much love? Curly didn't know much about theology fortunately. He knew a lot about Jesus. Jesus. The first church I went to some 40 years ago was the Parks Church in South New South Wales. I will never forget the members of that little Australian church, the Drapers, the Mowers, Mrs. Fletcher who helped Beverly with David when he was a little baby, their kindness and the love they showed us. I will never forget it. The patience they had with such a preacher who had all the answers to everything. In contrast, there was a man in another town where I worked who was a great speaker, a great debater on the gospel. He debated, he argued, he ranted, he raved. He divided people, he divided families, he divided churches. And in that same town, Beverly had relatives who came to visit us once and they knew that this man was a member of our church and they said, is so-and-so connected with you And we said, no, he's not connected with us. He calls himself by our faith. They said, we're glad he's not because he's the most crooked businessman in all the town. So I guess in the judgment, he's going to go up and say, I believe in Jesus. What about the robes? Then there was Pastor Heffron who taught me theology and the art of preaching When I ran a campaign in the historic village church back in 1984-85, he was retired an old man. He came as a visitor to visit the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He worked until the last day he died. He could not have been sweeter, more kinder. He said, anything I can do to take the burden off you. I was teaching some classes at Avondale College for their summer school and he said, if you want me to teach some classes, anything I can do. I couldn't read his heart, but I could see the garments. Another church we had in Gosford, the Gibbons family, a young couple came with their little children, running four campaigns at the same time, who fed us and mothered us and loved us. Larry and Hazel Jones of Melbourne, who still support us, When I think of them and the great Melbourne campaign, which was the biggest campaign in the history of Australia at that point in time, I think of them because of their love, their generosity, their kindness, and their absolute reliability. They did not lie to me. They did not say, I will be there and not come. The Mantons and Forbes, that was in our early days. Dorothy Manton was an American. And with her Australian family, they fed me more ice cream with cherries and strawberries. And in those days, my system could take it. <laughs> then there was Keith Johansson. There is Keith Johansson, who came with us twice to Africa. Without telling anybody, went to Sir Lucy College with me. But while there, without telling anybody, provided support for 25 poor African students, kind, generous. Oh my friend, why is it that so many people who go to church are repulsive and mean and critical and write such nasty letters? It is because they do not wear the wedding garment. And I think also of people at the community Adventist Fellowship. You see how my tone has changed from last week. (laughs) I think of Leah, who when I was once down a little, called me on the phone and prayed for me. Like Ron Barclay did some week or two back. And Art and Annette, who stand at the front doors. And Francis, who came to me after church last Sabbath and hugged me. And Roland and Sophia, honesty, love, integrity, dependability, not liars. A person who says he's going to do something and doesn't do it when he has the ability to do it is a liar and is not wearing the wedding garment. You see, there'll be no liars in the kingdom of God. I think of the P. rhinos. We're so glad that Javier is back from his escapades in Latin America. AND THEIR GENEROSITY IN FEEDING PEOPLE, THEY FED ME UNTIL THE SOUP HAS COME OUT OF MY EARS. AND Marcy RUDE AND SO MANY OTHERS. THEIR LIVES SHOW THAT THEY ARE DINKY, dye TRUE, BLUE, FAIR DINKUM, THAT THEY'RE GENUINE, THAT THEY'RE NOT PUT ON None of these folks will be embarrassed if I tell the congregation they are not theologians. And they do not pretend to be what they are not. My message is this. Believe and trust in Jesus alone. Receive salvation now. Put into practice his words And get dressed for the wedding. Because the king is coming in soon to to inspect the guests. And the final words of the master on that occasion are these. For many are called, but few are chosen. Amen. Amen. Amen.